0: You take a moment stand just greet a few people around you say good morning Okay, as you make your way back to your seat, just a brief review. This is our third week moving through the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. These chapters kind of form the part A to God's story. It's very difficult to understand the rest of the Bible, Old and New Testament, unless you understand the major themes and patterns that emerge in these first 11 chapters. So in Genesis 1, God is creating order out of chaos and forming... Uh, the universe, and then filling the universe with good things. And we talked about the symbolism of a temple there, that God is creating this temple, not just in a place in the cosmos, but he wants the whole cosmos to be filled with his glory and his goodness. And he appoints male and female image bearers to be his kind of high priests, to be those that reflect his goodness into the world. And Genesis 2 gives us, whereas Genesis 1 kind of gives us a... Um, 30,000-foot view of that creation story, Genesis 2 comes down at the ground level where we see Adam being formed and filled, and then we see Eve being taken from Adam's side, and it's this beautiful picture of an intimate God uh, powerfully involved in a very relational way in the formation of humans as opposed to any other creature that God makes, and that humans are blessed to thrive across four dimensions, their relationship with God and with their sense of self, their sense of vocation into the world, and with other people. So that's this uh, Edenic Garden of Eden um, experience that um, Adam and Eve share together. Now, I talked a little bit about how some of the themes that emerge in Genesis one and two would have been very shocking for ancient readers. And we talked about whether it's just something like that there's one God who created all things or the fact that this God created not through violence, but through love and order and simply by the words uh, of his mouth. And yet there are things that we come to the text with as modern readers that um, there are certain elements of this text that is no longer maybe shocking for us, but there are other elements of this text that we might find very shocking. There might be things that kind of leap off the page and that demand us to interact with them because of our cultural situatedness or because of the present cultural moment. And there's at least four that I wanna speak to at least briefly today, because I think for modern readers, these are really important, not just because we're modern readers, but because there's lots of discussion around how we should understand these things, whether or not we should lean into these truths or reject them. And there's lots of different competing voices in our culture around how we're supposed to interact with these four truths from Genesis 1 and 2. So I'm gonna be spending a little bit of time in Genesis 1, a little bit of time in Genesis 2, but my point is to highlight four topics or ideas or issues that are probably shocking or at least uh, challenging for us to enter into um, as modern readers. So here's the first one. First culturally shocking thing Humans are actually blessed to rule and subdue creation. Genesis 1, 26 and verse 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all creatures that move along the ground. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here is the biblical truth in its elevator pitch form from this text. Humans have been blessed, not just given permission, they've actually been blessed with the right and responsibility to rule and subdue nature. Now, There's a tension point there. And it comes from the fact that there are gonna be people who will be sensitized to this idea that has become prevalent in our culture that human beings act very exploitatively towards the environment and nature, broadly speaking. And the fear is that Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28 has actually been used to justify destroying or abusing our planet and its resources. And this was made famous by David Suzuki, Canadian environmentalist. We all know David. And in the 80s, he leveraged a paper written by Lynn White Jr. Who, that whose thesis was that Christianity was largely responsible for Western civilization's devastating attitude towards the natural world. And so for David Suzuki, Christianity's dominion ethic to rule and subdue um, pictured humanity as apex species that were allowed to rule the world and have complete dominion and were given divine authorization for human rapacity, which means exploitation and abuse. So in these passages, David Suzuki saw a divine legitimization for us to use the resources of the world however we want, and that's just the way it is. God's blessed it, so here we go. Now, to be fair, Suzuki's thinking that humans given dominion over the earth, maybe that means domination, and domination is obviously always tied to exploitation. You can see sort of the logic there, and with just these verses, you can kind of get there as well, because the Hebrew words for subdue and rule are not gentle words. Subdue in the Hebrew means to bring something or someone under complete control. And implicit to this idea of to subdue the earth, that command implicit to it is the idea if you do not subdue the earth, it will subdue you. That there's a bit of a... And and this is actually going to come up with some theologians who will push back on the idea that in the Garden of Eden life was perfect. The command to subdue the earth comes with it. The implicit acknowledgement that nature if left unsubdued, will overtake Adam and Eve in the garden. You've got to apply counter-pressure. It's subdue or be subdued. So there is this kind of adversarial thing set up right from uh, the start in the garden. Quite, Quite interesting. So we get this little clue, and I'll talk about it more next week, but this clue that maybe the way we think about the Garden of Eden as perfect or idyllic, maybe the text doesn't quite go that far. Very good, but not without some tension points. And the word rule, in the 25 other occurrences that this word is used, it's the exercise of authority that has been granted or acknowledged by another person. And it means rule and authority. And it's almost always used in conjunction with a monarch who has the ability to decree something and has complete rule over their kingdom. And so you take this idea of to rule and to subdue and to have dominion, And you can understand how Suzuki might come to the conclusion of saying, well, we have this, right from the start of Genesis, this divine invitation to just see the world as nothing more than a collection of resources that we can exploit to our own selfish and greedy and consumeristic benefit. But is that flow of logic and is that conclusion an appropriate one? And I would say it isn't. And here's how I would resolve that. Christians are to understand the call to rule and subdue, not as domination, but through the lens of lordship. In Latin, the word lord is dominus. So we are given as image bearers or vice regents of the creator. All human beings are given this blessing to have dominion over creation. But this, this gift and this blessing, first of all, it's tied to God. It does not come with no strings attached. There's accountability there implicit in the text and as you see the scriptures unfold very clearly God holds his people to account for ways that are exploitative and abusive even towards animals. A few codes in the Old Testament very clearly pushing back on this idea that just the animals are just there for you to exploit and whatever. We are to act towards the world the way the Lord acts towards us which is not selfishly or oppressively, but concerned and generous and often self-sacrificially. And this means that rule and subdue can never really be used to legitimate slaughter or abuse or outright neglect, exploitation of living creatures or systems. And as one commentator says, this power to rule and subdue cannot include a a license to exploit nature banefully. I love that word, banefully, evil, with malicious intent. These scriptures just cannot be used to legitimate that posture towards creation. And we know that because in the very next chapter in Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It's this idea of work it, drawing out its potential. The garden isn't necessarily complete. It's set up. And God says, hey, there's more potentiality here. Bring it out. And I want you to take care of this. You have this stewardship. Adam, you've been given this little garden, and I want you to make the most of it. This overarching human task to rule and to subdue and to work the garden and the garden of creation and to um, take care of it, this is called by theologians the creation mandate, or sometimes called cultural mandate. Nancy Piercy, in her book Total Truth, explains why it has been called the cultural mandate. She says, first, the idea of to be fruitful and multiply means to develop the social world, build families and churches and schools and cities and governments and laws. And the second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world. So we plant crops and we build bridges and we design computers and we compose music. And this passage is sometimes called the creation mandate because it tells us that our original purpose as humans was to create culture and to build civilizations and that that task is a very good thing. It's a noble thing. It's a God-glorifying thing. It's a deeply human thing to be a part of. And when you understand the creation mandate, I think that can help us avoid two unhelpful and unhealthy extremes. The first extreme of using this text, as Suzuki would fear, to say, oh, look at that, I get to rule and subdue, and we get to do that as human beings to the created environment, toward all living creatures and systems. Great. And now I just see everything through the lens of, how can I maximally exploit what's in front of me for my personal gain? That kind of anti-creation, anti-God, anti-creation care posture that the earth is somehow disposable or that we are not accountable for how we use the resources of the earth is very dangerous, it's a terrible extreme, and it doesn't have a theological foundation in the Bible. But neither does the other extreme of maybe certain environmental or nature ideologies that would put nature first or that would see all technological or civilizational development as being inherently violent against nature or as running interference on the nature of things. That humans are merely an advanced animal and are are, um, optimally just sort of in this um, ecological state of stasis with the environment. That they shouldn't be seeking to rule and subdue it, to just exist and survive within it. I think that is a very unbiblical, unwise, unloving posture towards each other and towards the created world. We as Christians are called to rule and subdue this earth, not exploitatively, but to leverage its resources as a source of blessing for ourselves, for each other. And that means that you have been called, you've been given a little garden, a little sphere of influence at work, at home, right, in your social relationships. You've been given a little garden to rule and subdue meaning to develop its potential and to take care of it and to abdicate that responsibility is a sin. You might have a tiny, tiny little garden. You might be envious of someone's bigger garden over here, but you've been given a little garden and you're called to bring out its potential and to take care of it, to nurture it so that you can be a blessing to those around you. Culture shock number two, we see in the early chapters of Genesis a gender binary reaffirmed. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right from the start, biblical truth wants to impress something upon us very clearly, which is that the gender binary of male and female is good. It's from the creator, and it's necessary for human flourishing. It's necessary for this cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But the tension point which many of us will probably feel immediately, is that there are voices today claiming that the gender binary in and of itself is an oppressive social construct. It's oppressive, meaning it prevents full human flourishing. And it's a social construct, meaning it's something that is just an agreed-upon construct at the level of society. So there's nothing inherent about it to nature and to the way things are but it's often used as a social form of control and manipulation even if it's not always intended as such and for someone with this view genesis 127 is seen as discriminatory and even transphobic this is part of the leverage point that the alberta ndp government did against christian schools in alberta christian schools in alberta as part of their statement of faith said we believe that all people are entitled to dignity, respect, and have deep human value because in the image of God, he made them male and female. NDP government in Alberta said, that's transphobic because you're referring to male and female. So the very scripture those Christian schools were using to say we treat everyone with respect and love was subverted to be seen as an oppressive social construct. And these people, uh, some well-intended, some I don't believe are, coach us to believe that gender is a spectrum so that everyone can have their place at the table and everyone can feel safe and welcome regardless of their own self-perception and self-identification. This is obviously a pretty nuanced, broad topic, but here's where I think Genesis 1 and 2 allows us to come to some nuance and resolve around these tension points. First of all, I would deeply question the idea that the gender binary is oppressive I would say it is not. I would say there are cultural, um, there are cultural manifestations around the expectation of gender that can be. So for example, the expression, so some cultures have a very rigid understanding of how one's gender should be expressed, right? Real men act this way, think this way, operate this way. Or real women act this way, dress this way, you know, you can fill in the blank. And those definitions around how we express our gender, they can absolutely be exploitative, oppres- oppressive, uh, overly restrictive and narrow. Um, but that is different than saying a gender binary is inherently oppressive. See, that there's a big distinction between gender, um, the gender binary and gender expression, right? There's a difference between saying there's male and female and um, there's only one way to be male and one way to be female, which the Bible does, uh, that that latter idea is not found in scripture at all. In fact, what we see is male and female uh, uh, imaging God in all kinds of ways through Israel's history, through the New Testament, great examples of men of God and women of God who express their maleness and their femaleness in all kinds of unique ways. One of the most contrasting ones, and you, you get it in the first few chapters of the New Testament, is the difference between how Jesus expresses himself as a male and John the Baptist. They have very different gender expressions, but we wouldn't say, well, they're not both male. Now again, gender activists, um, And ideologues are going to say, well, I'm misunderstanding gender, and I would argue I'm not. I would say there's kind of novel new definitions of gender that bring the word gender up to a point in which it's essentially meaningless or indistinguishable from gender expression. But as a Christian, I think it's really important to say gender binary, male and female, is not a oppressive social construct. It is created by God. It's a gift from God. Now, if you don't believe in a God, if you have a completely materialistic, evolutionary way of thinking, of course you're left with, it has to be a social construct at least, and therefore who is anybody to define who I am, uh, whether it's on the level of gender or uh, my own self-identity. But opening yourself up to that kind of radical and autonomous self-definition sounds empowering. I actually think it is um, enslaving and damaging because it fails to celebrate a starting point that the Bible wants us to recognize and affirm, which is that there's something common to all of our humanity, and yet humanity has a mirrored um, complementarity of maleness and femaleness. We need each other, right? The animals were brought to Adam. Adam didn't see a suitable helper, a suitable reflection, so God had to take Adam's side and make a woman, and there's a beautiful lesson there about how men and women need each other to fully reflect God's image into the world. And if we begin deconstructing and casting doubt on something as fundamental as a gender binary, even at the level of sex, not gender, which is um, most of the time 98% correlated, then I think you resign yourself to a kind of madness. Um, I don't understand, given modern gender ideology, what you can say with confidence about a little boy. Is it a little boy? Is it one person? Is, is the little boy little? Is the little boy a boy? But they're just basic categories of language that if you just deconstruct things enough and say no, we have to have a, almost an infinite level, an infinite amount of ways through which to discuss things, you actually break down our ability to form relationships and connections because you undercut the ability to just speak on commonalities. And to speak on commonalities might mean that we're going to make missteps at times. Well, aren't you a sweet little boy? I'm not little. He doesn't have a self-perception of him being little, right? And he might experience that as being rude. But me saying, aren't you a sweet little boy, that's not oppressive. That's just a way for me to move into the first steps of having a conversation to build a relationship but modern gender ideologies, I think, make it very, very difficult to do that because you're always looking for any kind of distinction or any kind of formulation of any core idea. If you believe that at its heart it's oppressive, I don't understand how you have a healthy starting point for just human relationships, yet alone a sane way of processing and engaging with the world. And you can reach out for love with people who, for whatever reason, whether they're born intersexed or they suffer from gender dysphoria, don't feel like they fit neatly into a categories that for them might feel restrictive. You can still acknowledge that and be compassionate and caring and be in a relationship with people in that situation while rejecting the idea that gender is an oppressive social construct. Right? We can and should reach out to those with compassion who suffer from conditions like this without necessarily embracing a gender ideology which seeks to reject so much of what's embedded in these early chapters of genesis okay quickly three and four three the meaning of marriage god causes the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs closed up the place, place with flesh then the lord god made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man and the man said this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So the main point here that I want us to see is that marriage is designed to be a sign and symbol of the great love story between us and God. Marriage is designed to be a sign and symbol of the great love story between us and God. Notice the pattern right from the beginning. right, Right there in Genesis 2. God creates an Adam, moves Adam into a death-like sleep, wounds his side, does violence to him. Out of the violence, out of the wounding, a bride is formed for Adam. What does that remind you of? Jesus in the church, right? The great love story of the God who comes to rescue his bride. How does he rescue his bride? Undergoes great violence, succumbs unto death, but from the wounding, including a wounding from a side, his new bride is formed from the church. And in marriage, where two people are covenanting to come together, male and female, in this complementarity of deep equality, uh, same as and yet different, we're seeing this symbolic sign of God loving his people Revelation talks about it, the end of revelation is heaven coming down and heaven and earth becoming one. This fundamental binary comes together in this union. And it's meant to be a sign and symbol of how we are supposed to interact with God. Now the tension point today is many advocates are pushing for marriage equality, saying any two consenting adults should be able to marry. These other advocates who would say any number of consenting adults should be able to marry. And those with this perspective would say traditional marriage, or I would say biblical marriage, is discriminating and unjust because it prevents consenting adults from entering into a loving, loving union. And again, this is a, obviously a um, challenging thing to summarize quickly without, um, with proper care and nuance. But let me kind of tell you where I'm at on this. First of all, I think 1 Corinthians 5 is really, really helpful as it relates to this discussion overall. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to an early church that is, uh, one of their members is caught in a sexual sin. And he says, You need to confront this person. You need to put them out of your fellowship. Um, they aren't just like making a mistake, they're doing it and they're bragging about it. And some of you in the church are bragging about it because the idea was that, well, now we're in Christ, we're forgiven. So this is the great liberty of being able to be a Christian, is that I can be forgiven and still do whatever I want, especially with my body, because the body doesn't matter, what matters is my soul. And if Jesus has purified my soul, I can impurify my body and it's not gonna have any effect in terms of my relationship with God or my eternal destiny. And Paul is saying, no, no, that is not how it works. Christ is Lord over all, including your body. But he frames his argument with this line. He says, you need to get this person out of your fellowship because what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You need to judge those inside the church. So right away, Paul makes the distinction, listen, I don't spend any time trying to enforce Christian morality on people outside the church who are not Christian. My job and our job is to hold each other accountable, those who claim to be under the Lordship of Jesus, who've been baptized. It's our job to push each other and challenge each other into greater conformity to the image of Christ. We are to hold each other accountable. And often what's happened in the church is we've minimized that part and then taken it upon ourselves as the church to advocate for a particular view of marriage at the level of legislature, law, and politics. In in effect, I think doing the opposite of what scripture uh, calls us to. In my view, I would say culture can and culture will have all kinds of different views on marriage. And it's entitled, people are entitled to choose whatever view of marriage they want. But what the church is called to do is to search the scriptures and say, what is God's design for marriage? And then if I'm going to enter marriage, how do I enter marriage in a way that is most aligned to that vision? And how do I keep growing in my marriage so that that expression of marriage, I don't need to go around and saying to people denigrating their relationship and holding out mine, as the right way. I can simply live that conviction and if they ask me, I can be honest about it and they can see. And what they see and experience is God's design. So the church is called to align itself with God's design and celebrate that as a public witness. And what that means for me is I can show respect and care and love towards those who practice different expressions of lots of things without feeling the need to have them act in a way that is Christian when their hearts aren't surrendered to Jesus. Personally, and I know people here might feel the opposite or would at least feel differently, but I don't actually feel a huge need to fight for God's definition of marriage. Simply living into God's calling for me as a husband, that occupies a pretty big chunk of my time and energy. It's not like, you know, spoiler alert, you talk to my wife, it's not like I'm killing it on the husband thing, right? (laughs) It's not like I have all this extra time where she's like, wow, you're just an amazing husband. You're just, you know, grand slams all the time. You should go out and try and convert other people to your way. I have to focus a lot on being a godly husband. And that's where I want to spend my time. The convictions that are established here in Genesis are built upon and expanded through the rest of the Bible. Jesus refers to them In Matthew chapter 19, you should read that. But for those who might say, well, the Christian view is inherently discriminatory or it's oppressive, it's important to understand the Christian view of marriage from within a Christian worldview, right? The male-female distinction, united and covenantal union of love and passion and commitment, that's a sacred thing, even if we don't live up to it as Christians, all of the time, much of the time. We're still called to pursue that vision not alter it or lower it or get our marching orders from the world in light of our own deficiencies or low aspirations. We should be striving to live into God's vision and spending 99% of our time uh, supporting and praying for the godly marriages in our midst. So tied to sexual, sorry, tied to marital intimacy and connection is the significance of sex and we see that here in Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So the main point that I want us to see is that sex is a gift that is designed to establish and renew covenant love, passion, and pleasure. And therefore, sex is deeply spiritual and sacred. Sex is a gift designed to establish and renew covenant love, passion, and pleasure Therefore, it's deeply spiritual and it's sacred. And yet the tension point is that in the midst of an increasingly expansive sexual revolution where sex is seen as recreational, as a form of mere appetite fulfillment, and a central entitlement to human personhood, this Christian or traditional view of sex, again, often gets portrayed or framed as stifling or sex negative. And yet, It's exactly the opposite. See, if you hold to a a strictly materialistic view of the universe, there's no creator, there's no design, we're just here because of chance, evolution, fast forward, here we are. I understand how you'd end up with a view that would say sex is simply little more than a biological drive. Maybe it has some um, relational and sociological implications in terms of bonding between uh, mating partners, but at the end of the day, Is there really anything ethically or morally wrong with person A saying, I would like to use your body to gratify myself sexually as long as both or many of those people that want to be involved in that are consenting? Like, I get how any kind of restriction to that might feel oppressive. But from within the biblical story, sex has such an important significance and power. The biblical story from beginning to end affirms the goodness and the power and the mystery of the sexual embrace. And it's actually... Christianity's high view of the sexual embrace and sexual pleasure that leads to so many of its cautions and warnings around sexual expression. It's not because Christians are sex negative, although many church cultures and Christian subcultures might lean into being sex negative, but biblically speaking, the Bible has a high view of sex, as something so good and so important and so beautiful, that we have to protect it from misuse. Because misuse in the sexual arena has a different level of wake of destruction for, the pers- for everybody involved and for society when it's engaged in as something diminished and cheap. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall then I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never." Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price and therefore honor God with your body. See, it's interesting because some Christians were saying, well, now that I'm saved, now that I'm in Jesus, I can do whatever I want with my body because Jesus has saved my soul. So I can go and participate in temple prostitution as a way to show my neighbors that I'm not like a oh, holy, ro- holy roller, holier than thou. Like, I'm just like them. I just have Jesus in my heart. And Paul says, no. Don't you understand that when you, when you enter the sexual embrace with a prostitute, even with a stranger, even when you're not intending it to, you actually form a kind of mystical one flesh union. Sex is not merely a physical act. This is something sacred, something profound is happening. Paul warns them that to have sex with someone is to bond with them on many levels, often in ways that we're not consciously aware of at the time, regardless of your intent. Even if you enter into the sexual embrace through a posture of being sealed off. Sue Johnson, who's the uh, creator of emotionally focused therapy, talks about three kinds of uh, sexual intimacy that you can have. And the first is sealed off sex, where you're sealing off your emotions from engagement and you're attempting to engage in sex, where the goal is basically to reduce sexual tension, achieve orgasm, and to feel good about your own sexual prowess. Paul says even when your heart is in that kind of a state, having sex, let's say, in his context with a prostitute, there's still a transaction at a spiritual level. The next kind of sex is solace sex, and this is sex that is used, when we use sex as a way to secure something else. So I have maybe a teenager has sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend because they're scared of losing them. It's a way of keeping the person in the relationship. Or someone has sex in order to get something else or to... um, Allay fears of anxiety or fear within the relationship. So sex is a tool that I use to get something else. Sex is a means to an end. Paul would say even if you engage with sex at that level, even if you're not attending it to, there's, there's still something mystical and important happening because at the deepest level of sexual expression, there's some kind of spiritual synchronicity being established. And that's the last level of sex that Sue Johnson talks about synchrony sex or sex that facilitates one flesh union, connection and communion. It's this kind of sex that Genesis 2 is pointing towards where the sexual embrace becomes protected and a powerful means through which a man and a woman establish and renew their covenant, right? When we engage in sex or sexual touching or sex play or just forms of physical intimacy that are outside the realm of um, uh, forms of connection and care and touch that we would extend to anybody else within marriage. That's a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. You're saying with your body, um, maybe with your words, but certainly with your body, the posture is one where you are affirming, I love you, I'm with you, I'm re-covenanting myself to you. I'm being as emotionally and hopefully vulnerably naked as possible in order to say that I don't share this intimacy with anyone else. And so that's where sex becomes powerful and healing and regenerative on so many levels. It becomes a force for good. But that's why Christians tend to have a very restrictive understanding of in what context sex, the sexual embrace should be engaged in not because they're scared of sex or because sex is something bad, but because sex is so powerful and it's something so good. And therefore, we have to be very careful that we're not engaging it in a way that doesn't inadvertently lead to all kinds of uh, destruction at the personal level, our relationship with God, ourself, others, and our vocation in the world. Now, you might not agree with that view of sex. You might see that as overly restrictive, but that's Scripture's view, and that's what we're being invited to see here this design for sex as gift. And so a Christian believes that you can't actually really even understand what sex is for unless you understand this whole greater love story of God's covenant faithfulness to us, calling us into a unique relationship where we are betrothed to him alone and we seek to um, please him alone. Ephesians 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. There's something in the sexual embrace that, as Timothy Keller says, um, offers a dim hint of the pleasure and passion and consummational joy that await us when Jesus returns and facilitates the um, reintegration of a new heavens and a new earth. When you understand sex in its biblical context, it's really hard to imagine a more dignifying and powerful understanding of sex and sex within marriage. It's a covenant renewal ceremony where each surrenders to the other ideally as a form of expressing love and care. And when you understand sex from that vantage point, for me at least, it makes all the other cultural invitations and depictions of sex seem very shallow, very undignified, very lifeless, very degrading. And when I talk to people or when I read articles from people who thought sexual liberation was going to be empowering, those are words that I hear and that I read. I thought this, what I experienced was degradation, greater sense of disintegration on the level of my soul or my spirit, disconnection with other people in ways that I didn't anticipate, lifeless, shallow. I understand all the struggles inherent to training our hearts and minds and bodies towards a vision for sex. I understand that. I know it's not easy, but to have that bigger picture of what marriage is for and how sex is to be seen and used within marriage, I think that's really, really compelling and beautiful. And it shows us why on so many levels, engaging outside of sex, sorry, engaging in sex outside of a covenantal context of marriage is gonna be poisoned to a greater or lesser degree. That's why it's so important that if we are engaging in any form of sex play outside of a marital relationship, you call yourself a Christian and you call that name, you bear that name, it's important for you on all the dimensions of your personhood to repent of that, to begin to discover the reasons that are driving you to either sealed off sex or solace sex, and to begin doing the work of spiritual growth to turn from that and to embrace, until you are married, celibacy as a way to honor God and protect your own heart and to begin to move forward with new momentum and new healing. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Shocking then? Maybe for different reasons. Shocking to us, but nevertheless, pretty shocking, pretty challenging. I wonder in your small groups this week or in connections over coffee to share which one of these affirmations, which one of these ideas is most shocking to you personally. But let's at least be brave and bold enough to allow these truths to transform us, to challenge us to move deeper into the way of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we love your word. Give us grace and power and courage and faith to not just.